Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's very wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRAR as DJ Lilas, and you're tuned in to WRARLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today with Tom Peeler and Kendra Mamula to discuss Larry Blamire's side-splitting spoof, Dark and Stormy Night, released in 2009. There's going to be a reading of the will. If you're not doing anything, we'd love to have you. Gathered here this 10th of May, 1930. 10th of May? Say, isn't that the very night that Sinus Cavender swore he'd return from the grave and kill everybody? Or something like that? Yes. It was on a night just like this. <sighs> remember 2009? Oh, oh. barely. <laughs> Do we remember? Obama it's like was three, in office. It's like three timelines ago at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like 10 years ago. We've had five different writers two different producers since then the budget got cut then we got random budget from another person like the Mm -hmm. whole the earth is on like the weirdest it's the weirdest season at this very moment i hate the Um, current showrunner they just don't have any idea what they're doing (laughs) and they hate us um but yeah it's we're, we're we're pushing through and enjoying good media and kendra i'm just so happy you picked this movie because it was so great yeah so i'm gonna for those who haven't heard these voices before they've both been on my show so thank you for both coming back for a second appearance Tom Peeler is was on episode 22 to comment to discuss on The World's End by Edgar Wright. Tom is a filmmaker, writer, director based in Philadelphia who graduated in 2011 from Penn State. He's part of a production group called Sycamore Street Studios, founded in 2004, and he's been making films about fandom and fun ever since. That's and- our mission statement. Yep. <laughs> is it? <laughs> <laughs> is that actually did i pull that from your website no you got it everything 100 percent accurate and uh all right i need more Fandom fun in my fun. life in this year <laughs> honestly okay we have to talk yeah fun is like an actual objective at this point <laughs> <laughs> it's no longer like a oh there's a trampoline it's like i gotta find a trampoline or i will burst um all right, Kendra Mamula, she came on episode 31 to talk about the lost skeleton of Cadaver. That was the first time I'd ever even heard of Larry Blameyer. Thank you, Kendra. Uh, Kendra's a photographer, art director, and general object obsessor working in Richmond, Virginia. She's been here for about two years after moving from L.A. Recently, she's worked as a buyer for the Walking Dead sequel World Beyond, and she's also been working tirelessly for Richmond Mutual Aid. So good job. Yeah, doing some fun stuff. Gotta gotta do both fun and hard work. So, Kendra, why did you choose Dark and Stormy Night? Well, this is one of Larry Blymer's movies I've never seen. Um, And because usually he's on like the sci-fi route for a lot of things. And this is his like dive into the um, more of the like 30s mystery movie. Uh, so I really wanted to see like how he was going to do this since it's, I mean, it's kind of in the same realm, but it also has, it's like its own monster. So I'm really stoked to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like a whole new egg to crack open. Oh yeah. And I wanted to see like what, how he was going to put his spin on it and chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) He's got something that works. He really does. And, and so, Tom, why do you like Larry and what drew you to him and like what brought, brought you to be interested in coming on for this particular show? Well, Larry's work was introduced to me through a cousin of mine who 
kind of introduced me to the world of B movies and all of their glory. And uh, the Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, I saw that in 2004, and I've kind of been quoting it to friends and acquaintances who are in on it ever since. Uh, no, nothing brings me more joy than when I can go to bed around someone I know and just go, I sleep now. So, I sleep now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> but Larry Hello, has... <laughs> <laughs> Four different animals. But yes, Larry has just this incredible passion you can tell in all of his work for this era of b-movie filmmaking and just kind of either paying homage to it or building on it in the modern day you know what i mean so i that's what i really like admire about larry and when the uh, dark and stormy night was pitched i had never seen it so it was just like oh of course a chance to watch this yeah I, and I'm so glad I did. I, you know, it definitely doesn't have as much meat on the internet bone as Skeleton of Cadaver or any of that. And oh, yeah. there's some reviews and it just feels like, I don't know how many movies he's put out now. It's five, six, seven since The Lost Skeleton. I need to look up. He seems like he's really got a, his his groove going and he's got his ensemble going. But I, I, I tried to pin this down with Kendra. Like, what is it about his ability to do spoofs that works so well? Like, I've never seen it done so well. And this movie is no exception. I think it's just as good a spoof of the dark house genre as Lost Skeleton is of those original kind of sci-fi B-movies. So maybe we can get to the bottom of that. I'm sure you both have some ideas. Oh, yes. All right, let me, let me quickly recap. For those of you who have not seen this movie, and I'm going to go ahead and guess it's most of you, <laughs> although I wish that weren't the truth, I'm going to give you a quick overview. Released in 2009, Dark and Stormy Night is a send-up of 50s Agatha Christie-style dark house horror whodunits, and it is wonderful. The story follows Sinus Cavender, who has just died. It's not about Sinus Cavender, but that's how it starts. And at the reading of his will, we're about to, the reading of his will is about to occur at a large estate. We have the Cavender family, friends of Sinus, a couple reporters, and a cavalcade of wild strangers like Mrs. Cup Cupboard, the fortune teller, and Dr. Va- Van Von Vandervon. <laughs> I love it! Uh-huh. Dr. Van Von Vandervon. <laughs> <laughs> All the names. Oh, it's God. so good, though. Suddenly trapped by a washed-out bridge, the Motley Ensemble have no choice but to stay the night in a House of Pain and Death, plagued by a handful of different movie monsters, including a phantom, a gorilla, a witch, an escaped mental patient, and not one, but two different cursed people set to rise from the dead that very night at 13 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part where they're just like, oh yeah, she is due to do that tonight. I forgot about it. <laughs> it's just so good. One by one, the lights go out and so do people's lives. A phantom stranger is killing them, and it's up to the plucky reporters, along with a hapless New York cabbie, to get the scoop and save the day. But is this phantom actually Sinus himself, back from the grave? Or something else? No air, please. I'm all right. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. All right. Let's get into it. I'm just going to go right over to uh, my first take, which is, this movie walked so Knives Out could run. Am I right, people? 100%. <laughs> Am I right? That is all I was thinking about the whole time. I was like, this is a ripoff. Like, Knives Out. Well, maybe, like, Clue skipped so this movie could run. Yeah. And, then I had, yeah. And, then I had, and then I had Clue crawled so Dark and Stormy could walk. <laughs> I had actually just seen Clue for the first time this year, no lie. And some seeing some of just the genre similarities and the play the playfulness of character introductions and things like that i was like larry is totally in the pocket for clue 
And I would imagine Ryan Johnson is the kind of film nerd who has probably seen this too. Yes. But like, I, this is, I, I, I'm not biased because we're talking about it. I like this movie better than both of those movies. Like Knives Ooh. Out, amazing. I, Knives Out, so good. Clue, so good. Both of them, huge budgets. This movie, probably, I need to look it up. What is it, IMDb? 50,000, oh, maybe 100K, maybe 150K. I He's feel still, very little. He just dances circles around these people with his script writing. Like, oh, I mean, that's what really holds this up, man, is the script. Yeah. It's, I mean, the jokes just keep on hitting you in the face <laughs> in the best ways. All right. What are your favorite jokes? Hit me with some of the favorite ones. Do you guys oh, have any oh written down? Oh, we're going to be um, all night. The, yeah. The best. <laughs> we're just going to read them out to you, people listening. <laughs> The best one is when they're all standing around. They're like, we cannot split up. And then it's like a second later. He's like, all right, let's split up. All right, let's split up. All just go in different directions. I was like, oh, man. I love the extended bit of uh, the first note they find on the first body says, you will be next. And everyone who picks it up and reads it, the person next to them is like, no, it's me. And they're like, no, I didn't mean you. I meant you are next. And then it's like, oh, and they they keep it going. But it never hits a point of like, this joke is is off now it's like oh it just keeps working it's terrific yep <laughs> you will be next ah, i knew it it is me what i don't understand you will be next well i, I ought to you will be next oh, it is me <laughs> and it signed the phantom so, yeah, of that joke, that's hardcore slapstick which i think younger audiences won't understand what that is are the vaudeville jokes like yeah. these traditional 30s jokes and hit, yeah it's done with love mm-hmm. but this like playing out the bit over and over and over for some reason the part where billy tuesday goes rats and jeans goes we have those <laughs> i don't know that one freaking got me hard i was like wow that's he, why is he so smart like he's just amazing so, i also laughed way too hard at him being named jeans <laughs> i loved it so much I loved all of the character names in this because they all just yeah. target the the fancy aristocratic names that people in would be called in this era of filmmaking. If you look at some of the surname, sorry, the surn if you look at some of the surnames in this, it's terrific. Ethelquake, Fanmore, Pat Fine, like it's it's so good. Christy, just Christy, Christy. alone. <laughs> That's worth the price of admission. Well they're like Christy. Name- their last name being Famish when they're like, <laughs> supposed to be like from the richest family. <laughs> I know. Famish. I have to ask a question. Is, Go ahead. Is Larry selfish or a genius for my opinion, giving his character uh, Ray Vestenhouse some of the best like one liners of the movie or just like, just cause in his delivery, I was cackling uh, when he shows up and he's just, Oh, hi, I'm Ray. My car just broke down and I'm also here for the reading of the will. Hope that's okay. Like I was in stitches. <laughs> But I loved when he was just asleep in the like uh, the dresser or whatever that is, and he like falls out, and he's like, "Oh, sorry, I must have fell asleep," and then just leaves. Like, yeah, not a stiff. He's just asleep. If you aren't getting the feeling from our 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 whatever we're having this moment right now, it's just that this film, it, like like Kendra said, it's slapping you in the face. It's it's like it's thirty jokes a minute. It feels like like just the amount of jokes crammed into that house. Mm-hmm. Is, so. Um, Tom, I know you just watched Last Skeleton of Cadaver last night as well, or close to. What did you notice in about this movie in, in differences between that? You know, you said he sell I think he definitely tried to downplay himself. He wasn't as bait of a character. But what else do you notice different between these movies? I mean, first and foremost is the ensemble. He is clearly collected 
a troop of actors and other filmmakers that he you know continues to carry over uh i really enjoyed seeing uh jennifer blair who i found out is his wife she plays animala in la skeleton of Mm -hmm, cadabra mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in here she gets to be billy tuesday and she just gets to tear it up so many great fast-paced one-liners between her and the other reporter characters so that was a delight and uh just also getting them to see him work with not a tremendously bigger budget but clearly a little bit more resources to you know pull off his vision of how can i pay homage and poke in the ribs these uh you know these classic films so it it was good to see like how his evolution took him you know Mm -hmm. you know in an interview he he was asked that same question how does dark and stormy night differ from the skeleton films and larry said well the biggest difference is the first lost skeleton spoofed and emulated a very cheap low budget and yes bad movie (laughs) <laughs> while the sequel was a better budget jungle bee picture but dark and stormy night is spoofing and being a 30s old dark house mystery not necessarily a bad movie just an old movie the old dark house films and they still make them in various guises were good bad cheap expensive all over the map we wanted and got nice sets and costumes and what fun to let the ensemble riff 1930 style hell yeah that's great I also read that he apparently wrote this movie specifically for the man in the gorilla costume who's a famous gorilla costume actor. Did you guys read that on the IMDb? That's oh. apparently that's really a whole reason behind this. Let me pull this up real quick. Bob Burns, legendary gorilla actor Bob Burns mentioned to Larry Blamire that he'd always wanted to play one in an old dark house movie. Blamire promptly wrote one into the script for him. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. That's it. Done. I love that. Bobby the gorilla Gitz. was Bobby one of Gitz. my favorite just almost inexplicable parts of the movie <laughs> i don't know around. that old lady that old lady oh. being like, <laughs> what great fun see ya come on gorilla and the gorilla also had like the biggest chest i was like wow all right yeah. we're gorilla. but it's just like it it's so fun it's so good and i'm I, just like you know we, we're, we're talking about script but we might as well go ahead and check in now prop master mm. set master kendra what give us a breakdown let's go um i was really stoked to see him actually getting like somewhat a lot of money to make the sets that you can clearly tell that he really wanted to make where like it felt like they would make in a set stage or like on a stage in the 30s where it's like Mm -hmm. the giant big fireplace that has like weird dimensions where like it almost is coming at you and everything seems like you can really tell the texture of everything they're using to create it. Um, I really want like, man, I wish I bought the DVD so I could see the behind the scenes. Cause I, I just want to see how this thing was actually built. Cause it's phenomenal. That's a ton of rooms that you would have to build. And with like a small budget with everything else, like lighting, cause that's a major thing for all of those thirties movies. Like th- it was probably a pretty tight budget, uh, but it was really fun seeing um, it almost felt like it felt big, like almost um, like theater wise, which which was really great because it gives them a chance to like run around, really talk, almost feel like they're talking to the audience, but still feel um, like a movie. But I don't. It was just like it was so great. It was I, I love the way that they uh, decorated a lot of it. Some stuff I was just like I don't. I have a lot of question marks, like the desk decorations where the lawyer was sitting. Like, mm-hmm. it almost made, like, a semicircle around him, like, all of the objects. 
and like they seemed like awards and they were just all looking at the lawyer at the whole time and i'm just like what is like are they also very intrigued by this like reading of the will you know and mm -hmm. it's great um the main thing for me uh was which i was like god i hope this happens and i knew it was going to which was foreshadowing with objects oh really so if you look at um near the beginning um there's gonna be i guess a spoil some spoiler alerts um I, I won't say their names but the first person to die if you look um when she's like giving a speech to her uh well oh yeah when she gives her speech to uh teak there's actually a uh, statue behind her and it's pointing at her and it's, she immediately dies after that. Oh, oh my gosh. And she, then she saw this on one pass, you guys. <laughs> and then uh, when they're in the living room again, after they find, uh, they find a letter, uh, Satan, which I still, I'm like, I have to say his name because his name is the funniest thing. The uh, uncle, he's like about to read it and he dies. And if you look, there's the, um, like a bust behind him that's staring right at him when he dies oh my so gosh i was did, just like this they gotta have object foreshadowing in this man <laughs> of course they did did either of you notice um on the coffee table in the little lounge where a lot of the mystery and drama happens there's some kind of it's almost an oculus like object it's like a glass sphere and i i wrote in my notes um like around the 47 minute mark like a face is visible through it. It's a man with dark hair from what it looks like. And I, you know, I, I like wrote this down. I was like, that just seems like it, it's not, it doesn't seem like it could be a, a reflection of anybody. It seems like it's prominently placed there, but I also didn't know what the object was. Um, like Kendra, did you know what it was or maybe camera? Did you notice this at all? I, no. Okay. I, I, I noticed it and I want to say, but it's going to like spoil a lot. I don't know if people don't want spoilers. Um, oh, no, this is hardcore spoil time. Just okay. go for it. Um, yeah. So what I think it is, is so again, this is going to sound chaotic if you haven't watched it. Um, so so-so uh, is the deranged person that like uh, got out of the hospital. So she killed the actual so-so and took her place and was going to take all the money. And I think that photo is the original so-so. Oh, okay. No okay. I could be wrong, but that was like, it looks like a brunette girl. And that's when I was like, what is that? Okay. And then once the whole thing, where I was like, wait a minute. If there's a photo literally like giant and no one has noticed that it's not technically her, that would be quite funny. I have to, re I have to watch it again. Maybe I'm like way over, but um that's like my the end of what i thought it was gotcha I, it's something where i agree with you i would love to have this on physical media because watching it streaming you know i kept bumping the resolution up and i was just like so that's a face it's mm -hmm. really grainy as heck and obviously i i couldn't center on what that object was but i i i love that completely though that that's a great bit of foreshadowing if that's what larry was going for i love it i also just love faye matterson the woman who played Betty in Lost Skeleton is this character. Just like all of her whimpering at the beginning is so funny. Like just the sheer amount of whimpering. The part, the line where she's like, I'm like a tiny kitten. I'm going to be picked up with a pair of tweezers. I'm so tiny. It's <laughs> like she's so, she just owns it. Okay. So yes, this movie had a million dollar budget and Lost Skeleton had a $40,000 budget. And 
you know what? I, I really got to hand it to him. He really used it as well as you possibly could have. Like, I'm sure, I mean, Kendra, how much of that do you think went to set and props? Oof, gosh, um, I don't know. I'm like, that's a, he did a lot of set construction, which is like, because he had to have like the living room, the kitchen, the, the hallway, the, hallway, the uh-huh. bedroom. Like that's a ton. The dungeon. The dungeon. Oh, and the like the main hallway where they like go up the stairs. That's a ton of money. And I know that uh, I think he talked about how like that was like that and costumes were like the biggest money things that the money pits they had with it. Um, And I think that's also why there isn't as much decoration as I was like kind of hoping there would be. But I think a lot of the money went to the literal construction and the construction is phenomenal because it does really look like like 30s I'm sure like if we saw it in color it probably would look insane but it was definitely probably built for black and white um so I'm like I don't even know because I'm like I'm thinking like lighting wise and like you have to pay all of those people to be there like geez um I would guess maybe like a hundred fifty thousand i could be totally wrong it could be way more but yeah i mean like that could just be construction alone because that's that was a ton of construction mm. and kendra if i can speak to your point real quick on uh you know designing for black and white i i remember reading that lost skeleton of cadaver was was recorded but converted to black and white in post i felt this looked a lot cleaner and crisper in the way it was designed like i felt like the you know the darks were a lot more like richer and just the the way the cinematography looked i would not be surprised if they were a lot more conscious about you know designing the sets and the costumes to make sure they were filmed in black and white and that they actually looked good you know not saying that less skeleton is unwatchable or anything but there is uh, a degree of like that kind of just black and white saturation turned all the way down and that passes in the moment but you know you 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 know you can tell films that were put together because they knew how it had to look, you know, versus ones that just slap, like have that look put on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the kitchen scene with Archie, I think that's his name. Mm-hmm. Archie. And he's like <laughs> cutting or whatever, but it's like the lightning's going and like half of his face is like in shadow with the like giant knife. Like that is clearly so well lit for that specific moment that would like would only do well in black and white, I feel. And I think they really nailed that like 30s, 30s light, like harsh, weird lights coming from different angles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also the amount of thunderclaps. Oh my Ooh. gosh, I was rolling. I, the thunderclap counter was going. I think I got to like 22. <laughs> Just like, you got to use those, right? Like he overuses the tropes and that's why it's funny. Like he points mm-hmm. out tropes so you don't even recognize how tropey they are. But you're, I, I, re, I watched something recently on ISO and didn't know this, but like when films started coming out, you guys probably both know this, but like when it, it was originally rated at low ISO, so like 25 was the first one. So Charlie Chaplin films had to be lit so much that it was like blindingly bright. And so for the 30s, the film was at like 100 or 150 ISO. And so all these movies, I never realized this, they're all lit like, like a stadium. Mm-hmm. And I realized like he was replicating all of this. Like he's replicating it shot for shot. He's, he's picking up on these subconscious things that, that key you into it being these old style movies. But I, I want to talk about watchability and I want to talk about fun. But first I want to tell you that you're listening to WIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond independent radio. 
I'm Cameron Kitt here with Tom Peeler and Kendra Manula talking about Dark and Stormy Night by Larry Blake. gone, Teak's gone, Sebastian's gone, Jack Tugden's gone. Where? Where can they have all gone to? Is there a play or something? Who the devil could that be at this time of night? I know, it's 13 o'clock. Well, where's Jeans? I haven't answered a door in 27 years. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <I break>. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> just love the thunderclap. I mean, all right, insert thunderclap. But I also want to talk about fun a little bit because this movie, there's a, a quote I want to read for you guys, which is Larry saying, the guy asked him, hey, one thing I love about your films is that they're kind-hearted and family-friendly. What, made, what motivates you to make such movies? And Larry said, I think especially today, audiences should at least have the option of seeing purely fun films. I like the idea that there's at least some horror sci-fi kids can see today. Jen and I sometimes check out the endless CSI Law and Order shows, and after a while it becomes dismal and dispiriting. And some horror movies make you want to take a bath afterwards. I'm not a prude when it comes to gore, and that works within context. I'm not at all saying to ban torture porn. I'm for freedom and whatever people want. Just let's have a fun option. Also, it's funny. I absolutely love 70s edgy paranoia films, yet mostly despise cynicism. Go figure. Yeah, I guess there's no meaning, meaningness, meanness in our films. And that makes sense. Meanness often today is easy and simplistic. It's an easy and simplistic way to manipulate an audience's emotions. This guy is wholesome AF and I love it. <laughs> I, just, I, I wrote in all caps. How did I never even think about how family friendly this is? Like, oh, my either. God. <laughs> I didn't either. What, what a king. Like, what a king. This is a movie you can watch with five year olds. I was like, I didn't even think about that. Like, mm-hmm. to me, that elevates your ability. Like, if you just like being a stand up comic who never cusses, like if you can make me laugh without ever cussing, you're a king. Like, yeah. Good job. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But I, I really do like what he said about meanness, quote unquote, because, you know, especially with the rise of kind of a content creation online, it kind of is easy to just be cynical and be mean, you know, that it's, there's a lot of people who draw audiences just on like this thing is bad and it's a lot harder to make points or have conversations, it seems, about this is good, isn't it? You know, so I think he's I think honestly, he's got a point. Hey, even more kudos to Larry for you know, wanting to be that conscious of his audience. Well, what would you say is something you've worked on that you would consider the most fun? The most fun? Mm-hmm. I probably have produced the most fun content when it's just uh, sketches that aren't maybe necessarily narratively driven, but are just about being silly. Uh, I have a sketch wherein two friends start playing a Mario game, but the other finds out that it's actually a, uh, a Stanley Kubrick esque portal to another world. And it turns him into an old man and everything. So that's <laughs> oh, no. one of the more fun. I'm already laughing. See, it's already yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. What about you, Kendra? What, what would you say is something you worked on that was the most fun, intentional? um oh geez fun oh i know it's so rare i know like i feel like i've just worked on so many serious things Mm um i i I would say the unicorn when i worked on that uh i was only 
I was like an RPA buyer for it. Um, that was with um, Lauren Lapkus and Nick Rutherford. I could be totally wrong. Um, but that was like really fun because it was uh, where it was a ton of comedians on set. So where you, they would give them like 15 to 20 minutes to just talk to each other on like and just riff off of each other, which was like super fun just to sit there and listen to them just being themselves and coming up with the most insane thing at like three in the morning at this like random strip club. So I, I had a lot of fun at that. For those who don't know, the unicorn is a film by Robert Schwartzman that came out in 2018 and yeah, pure comedy. I don't know. Would you call it a pure comedy? It's it's it, that's how it's built. Yeah. It's, it's like a rom-com comedy, kind of a indie fun thing. <laughs> Yeah. And that, and like, I, I guess part of me has always looked down on doing comedy. Like it's beneath me. Like it's not as high of art. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, well that's silly. You know, that's not something I can carry to the temple of the gods. Right. Like you have, <laughs> and then it's like, wait a second. It takes more, I think it takes more guts and also sometimes it might be harder to make something fun and funny or like to make something that is going to get laughs and, and create some joy. Yeah. I'm like, I want to work on more comedies so badly and it's so hard to get on one. I feel like, um, to me, I'm like, again, it's like the same thing where it's like, it's all perspective, what people find funny, what people find don't funny, you know? Mm -hmm. And the same thing that like, uh, there was a book that I read that said, um, like the humor and, um, like being scared or kind of in the same part of your body, um, to where it's like you belly laugh or like you get scared, your anxieties in your stomach. Um, so it's all like Mm. perspective on like what can get someone to get that feeling. And that's, what's like really difficult about those things. Hmm. I agree on that. Wow. I I wonder if that's why that works for horror in this, Mm -hmm. but yeah, continue Tom. No, I was going to say the, the, the subjectivity of humor is what I think makes it a little tricky for creators. And maybe it's what scares certain creators away. Uh, I know just in my experiences, I've sat down with friends or family, put on something that I find funny, and you were greeted with stone cold silence. And that's a little daunting. So when you think about uh, channeling your comedic tastes into a creative work, maybe sometimes that haunts you a little bit of like, well, I find this funny. Is this going to work for everybody else? And maybe that's just the kind of creative anxiety that, um, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, you, you, you're, you're a little unsure of like, is this worth it? And things like that. But something to mm-hmm. note about like Larry and just his work on Dark and Stormy Night, I, I would say my sister and I, despite getting along well, we do have like different comedic tastes. I've shown her some comedies that she has just been like, that wasn't funny. But she came in briefly through the living room during a section of Dark and Stormy Night and uh, they shot off one of the, the, like there was a really good one-liner going down. Oh, it was where, they think Ray's died and then he like jerks up and coughs and he's like, Oh, sorry, that went down funny. And my sister like admitted (laughs) like a pretty good chuckle as she like walked out of the room. So I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. So maybe Larry's just knows how to hit that like instant appeal. You know, I think it's that maybe there's just enough laughs that he knows he's going to get at least one for whatever laugh, like a humor type you are, you know, and he fills it up enough. Like, okay. The line (laughs) Where they find the letter and the cabbie goes, hurry up and read that letter before you get killed. <laughs> I want to keep my eye on that guy. Take one of mine. I found it. I found the letter. Oh. oh hurry up and read it before you get killed. Hi. To whomever it may concern. Oh, like, how do you not, how do you not laugh at that? It's just so good. Oh, gosh. The whole, all of it. Mm-hmm. Like, one of them else, like, 
when they find the letter and they die and they're like, they shouldn't have told us that they knew something. Mm-hmm. Like, like who says stuff like that? But it's just like, so that kind of dialogue is some of my absolute favorite where it's just like things that sometimes people say in their head, but don't say out loud. And like all of these characters just say immediately what's in their mind. And mm-hmm. it's no filter at of, all. Yeah, absolutely. It's my favorite. I like, uh, oh no, I love the banter between the reporters is still the best. Oh my gosh. The amount of slang that he crammed into this film is bursting at the seams with all strictly Jake. And then they all say skip it a bunch. And then one time Billy, not holiday, Billy Tuesday goes, okay, you mug. I was like, wow, I wish like, I I, did he make all of it up? Did he just make it up? That's what I want to know. There's a pair of, Oh, oh, go Tom. Uh, there's a pair of fast bantering reporters in the final season of Netflix's BoJack Horseman. And as I was watching this, I was like, somebody on the BoJack team are big fans of Faraday and Tuesday. And I just want to know who, like, <laughs> give give Dark and Stormy Night the shout out it deserves. It really does need more of a central light. But yeah, I love I love that those characters and I love all that slang and like the loving attention to the 30s. But Kendra, why do you think you like their characters? Um, I think I'm, they're banter together and like obviously there's like just that weird chemistry of the, you know, they're battling against each other, but you know, is there something there? You know, they're enemies, but they just like work so well together and play off of each other so well. And I mean, like, uh, was it Billy Tuesday is just like all, anything that she says and the way that she says things, it's just absolutely like that's uh, like she just steals the show the entire time it's kind of incredible um but it's even at points when they're just like kind of yelling like slang at each other that doesn't even like work but they're just they're like their intensity of how they're saying it to each other it's just like a secret language that like maybe because we're not journalists we don't get it um mm. so that was like i really just loved their whole they were like a team even though they weren't trying to be a team it was kind of just adorable there's a part where the dr van von van der von goes one of my criminally uninhibited patients is believed to be well right in this area and billy tuesday goes boy what a scoop and the other guy goes are we lucky or what it's so cute it's so good if either of you are interested in talking about that like what are some of the things that he plays off of that are considered genre in this in this movie i mean i think we have to talk about the lair in the basement on like Mm -hmm. there's maybe five things in there it's like the little chemistry ish set on the side and then like a couple of like electrical things and then some stairs and like that's it you know and they're like this place is incredible i think i'm gonna put a couch in here like it's like it's not incredible but it's like at a point that they're like uh there's a couple things in here you're gonna get that it's a you know a layer down here that like science happens in is mm-hmm. i i just love that he does it's like just a little of amount and then like overplays it is such an incredible thing that he does it's because you don't need a lot you really don't. You're just like, there it is. Here, Yep, that's a layer. That's definitely what they would have in their basement. <laughs> and in the angle of the camera, too. Like, we're on the ground peeking up, mm-hmm. right? We're deep down in the house. So- 
Uh, something I wanted to talk to that I really enjoyed when we're talking about genre tropes is that, you know, for a, a very large ensemble like this, he draws such distinct characters and they're all, you know, built from the molds that you would see in these movies. And some of them, even if they wouldn't traditionally be like, I believe, Cam, you said at the top and kind of like an Agatha Christie-esque story, they're still believable enough from this time period that it's like, oh, this makes complete sense why this is in here. You know, you've got... Uh, You've got Teak, who's like the bumbling uh, ne'er-do-well husband. You've got uh, you've got J- uh, Jack Tugden, the the safari leader, who like, feels so period appropriate. I don't, and I know that's it's justified in universe why a safari leader's here, but it's just so funny that he even would be included. Uh, Lord Partfine, uh, played by Andrew Parks, who was also in Lost Skeleton as the oh, uh, I know. alien leader. So good. Yeah, just a complete buffoon, uh, like, you know, upper class buffoon. Loved it. Loved it. Um, but yeah. And they're all and this, of course, you have the scheming staff, you know, you have Jane and Archie uh, who are know what's, you know, know what the real thing going on is because of, you know, of course, they would see everything day to day in the operation. So you, ha- you, you have all these scheming upper class people trying to get to the root of this mystery. And meanwhile, you know, the, the house staff really know what's going on and they're also kind of playing against the uh, the um, I keep saying upper class, but it, it, like there is just class dynamics there. You know, that's what yeah. it is. Uh, other movies like uh, I would say, you know, Gosford Park include play into that as well with characters who are servants. So uh, Larry just he, he really knows what he's doing and it makes all of them really distinct. You know, nobody gets lost in the crowd. I never saw a character and was like, who is that again? Like, I just knew who they were. And the they also themselves. say each other's names a lot, which is helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really yeah. pot fine. Yeah. I thought also Brian Howe as Burling Famish Jr. really tied the whole thing together. His kind of doing like a Charles Lawton impression. I don't really know what he was doing, but I didn't know this until I looked him up. He's like one of the people from the bunch who's kind of quote made it. He's been in Westworld and he was in Pursuit of Happiness. Like oh. he's a little bit more of a legit actor. He's and in so uh, his, me if you can as one of yes. Uh, he's like Tom Hanks's right hand man and as, as a, in terms of the FBI squad in that movie. And so I think his his i mean they're all equally talented they're all i think many of them are his friends from the theater and that's why this works well it's like it's basically a play right so him oh. having having proved that he can make a movie really going back to his roots of what makes a good you know ensemble play and just having as much fun as he can but i thought burling famous junior with all his like hunches and lip rolls and just all of his noises were it was so fabulous to get to see him like live out a character that was a little bit more in depth than the one he got to play in Lost Skeleton Cadaver, which was basically just like the upset scientist, like mm-hmm. lesser scientist to Larry. Kind He's of, very upset right? in that movie. I will not deny everything. He's just constantly upset. Yeah. <laughs> but he does have the best cackle in Lost Skeleton for sure. Oh, yeah, he really does. <laughs> He's upset that he's always been hated by skeletons. Yes. <laughs> Do you all have a favorite character? Oh, it's hard. I'm like, I, I think it's, I love jeans just because of his name. Like mm. jeans is just, you're like, come on. I wanted jeans to be like the main man. So I was like, God, your name is just way too good. I thought jeans was going to be the murderer. I really did. I was hoping it was going to be like Archie Jane, like team tag or tag team. Oh yeah, and like the gorilla was like the thing. Uh, I was apparently I was like really thinking this gorilla was gonna like come up at the end, which I'm so glad it didn't because it I think it kind of worked so much better. Yeah, mm-hmm. honestly, it was probably Billy Tuesday. I just 
she was all of her lines were just great you had a case of Chekhov's gorilla it's like you don't introduce a gorilla in the opening credits if you don't intend to use yeah if he's not gonna play a pivotal role unless you're Larry who wrote the whole movie just so this gorilla could have three like screen appearances (laughs) just popping in can, yeah, we shout out Susan, can we shout yeah. out Susan McConnell real quick as Thessaly yes. the, the, and the reveal yes. of like, her character oh, because yes. she gets to have so much fun oh with that role and that delightfully over the top Scottish accent she's putting on. I don't I know wish. if she's actually Scottish, but she she really... I wish I could do that accent so bad. Step back, oh. burling a great baggage claim. <laughs> she called him a baggage when she called him a baggage claim. So good. Yeah, she gets like she gets like ninety percent of the best Bizarro lines. Mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, yeah, for sure, good. they're having like a tea party in her room, like mm-hmm. her in the cabbie. I was just like, what? What is going on? Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. So why does this work? Like, on paper, I don't know. I guess if I read the script, I would be laughing out loud, right? So he wrote a script, but looking at it objectively on the table, all of these things strung together shouldn't make a movie that works. So why does it work? I think for me, I'm like, everyone seems to really enjoy what they're doing. Like the, everyone that worked on the set versus everyone that played all the characters, like you can tell they truly love what they're doing and love being around each other. And I think again, that's like with Larry Blamer all the time is like, he does that so well, where I think he creates an atmosphere that like you can really feel through the film and you feel like you're a part of it, honestly, which is great. Like a lot of times you feel like you're in on the joke a lot. And um, that's true. Yeah. So I think again, with that wholesome feel, um, you're never, you never really feel alienated, which is great. Yeah, I agree. It's this, it's the sincerity and it's the degree to which they will never like overdo it. So there, I, there's several, you know, very dramatic, serious soliloquies and monologues in this movie that a character will just comedically undercut with like a, oh, well, or oh, never mind. You know, it, it's it's a movie that knows what tone it's going for. And it wants you to know, like, hey, just chill and have fun because we know what we're doing. And when you see when you see people passionate about something doing it well, I think that's always uh, just a front row seat for fun. And this one totally achieves that, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to guess it also has something to do with like the consistency with which we are delivered any kind of realism. Like there is never a sense of realism. The house from a distance is clearly a set piece, but they've, they have more budget to work on. So I love all the zooms in. I love all the rain. I love all that stuff. I love the, you know, just from the opening, when I saw a car driving over the bridge, I was like, oh, Larry got some money. Like <laughs> That, that okay, miniature work was, was great. It took me a second. Work. Oh, but but even though the the production value was higher, we're never ever given the sensation that this is meant to be serious. Like I'm never actually scared of any of what's happening. Like no one is ever killed in a bad way. And Kendra, I'm sure you love that they reuse the exact same prop for the murders every single time. Every single time. Same place. (laughs) Oh, for me, position of the knife. (laughs) It was Archie always cutting the same meat every time. (laughs) It's been like hours. I was just like, I, it never changed. Like that bat never changed. And I was like, yes, this is why I love Larry so much. Like it's just those little things where you're like, oh, oh yes. And like, I, this is like so out of left field, but I'm like, it's one of my favorite things. And I don't know why is when uh, Billy is like in the bed as um, the, oh God, what's her name? So, uh, so, Sebastian. So Sebastian, thank you. Um, 
like the when the hand starts coming out it's like it comes out and then it like it almost waits for its sleeve to pop out and then it comes down like it has mm -hmm. to have its entire feeling before it can do whatever it needs to do mm -hmm. i mm -hmm. paused and for some reason like i lost it i was like you waited for that sleeve like that is mm -hmm. incredible mm-hmm I mean, the killers well, already had to the killers already had to cut off part of that elaborate robe to escape at one point. If it's going to go after their their target, they're going to get all of the grandeur of that, you know, that sleeve, that loose sleevey robe, you know. <laughs> and I'm glad that we had, you know, gender equality in the murderers. That was yeah. really nice for me. I really appreciated that, you know, because they're like, is it a boy or is it a girl? And he was like, yes. That is a question. <laughs> he never saw what his patient looked like. So. Right. Right, we well, about, right in this area. <laughs> yeah, and we talk about wholesomeness. The killers, there's that great scene where they realize, oh, it's you. You want to work together? Yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of right in this area, you're listening to WRAR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio, local, produced music, news, and talk like what you're listening to. We're right in your area. And thanks for tuning in. me just passing through i'm cameron kitt i'm here with kendra mamula and tom peeler talking about larry blameyer's send up dark and stormy night here on they came from outer space it's a gorilla of course i have a question for you all since i don't know camera stuff really well so i wanted to see what you guys thought there's like two specific shots that i was like what is going on uh, one of them is when they're like sitting around the dining room table and it, it seems like the camera is sweeping from like the doctor to like whoever is talking like I feel like it didn't cut very much and it felt really cool like I had to replay that mm -hmm. and then the, the other one was the kitchen scene when they all come in like the four of them and it's almost like they're dancing around the table with Archie I was like was the set moving around or were they actually with the camera moving around I would assume they either had the camera on tracks to get that fluid motion because I noticed what you mean for the dining room uh, shots. It's we start on one side of the table and we're slowly doing like a dolly pan left or right between important speakers and then the flip side of the table to catch the flip side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would also assume maybe they did that in the kitchen. I I'd have to rewatch it to see how stable the camera is to figure out if um, it was, you know, just someone moving, holding the camera either like in their hands or on a rig. But that's what I would assume personally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I did notice straight away that the, the cinematography was way smoother and purposefully way more, I guess, per, well produced, right? There's, there's slider movements, there's push-ins and push-outs. I think the shot you're talking about at the, it almost felt like, like, a, like it's up on a crane shot, but I don't know the, the shot you're talking about with the scene when they're in the kitchen, but they did have a, he did have a different cinematographer. His name is Anthony J. Rickard Epstein. And this guy has worked on a bunch of B movies, but the, the guy who I think they had as their cinematographer the first time, Kevin F. Jones has done um, nothing except Larry's movies. I don't want to talk down about Kevin, but it seemed like with more budget, he just got a cinematographer with gear and no, mm -hmm. no offense, Kevin, but um, it seemed like that. Yeah. Like there was an intentionality to making the shots actually have some meaning. And I was not happy. I was, I mean, not unhappy about that 
Uh-huh. Yeah, like to, to play up what's happening, to have slow zooms in on characters who are having deep thoughts or having a you know a conversation. I just don't really remember that those wider shots. Um, I guess that speaks well to like how well they were put together that I wasn't noticing them, you know. But there were just moments when the camera would actually move, and I was like, "This is not a skeleton <laughs> production." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> in Lost Skeleton, it's like cameras on sticks. Let's go. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Lights, yeah, boom. we're going. One shot, that's it. We'll get a flip, maybe. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I In terms of, like... you, you mentioned okay. uh, a sh- shots with weight and intention. The the scene that starts with Thessaly and Happy the cab driver in her room having a little tea party, it, it kind of, it starts outside the room, moves up so that the camera's like in the door frame and you see that they're in this tight, cramped little room and that's been Thessaly's prison cell. And then as Thessaly kind of realizes that she can just talk her way out of the cell and replace herself with happy as the prisoner the camera pulls back we're in the hallway now and so it's like thessaly's outside she's finally free she's crossed the frame and happy is now in the claustrophobic small room through the frame and then she just shuts the door and completes it it's it's simple but it's a good kind of visual transition of you know tight trapped prisoner status to oh now i'm free and i have reign of the whole house i i I like that one Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm Well done. It just seems like it'd be fun to be part of his crew. Right? Just like every up. time. Oh. How much do you think of the humor is improvised? Or do you think that Larry just has like a total lock on every joke? I, I, I feel like it's so well written that, I, I mean, like maybe he lets them riff, but I think like he just has a way with words that mm-hmm. I, would, I would never want to like bounce over them because mm-hmm. it, they just flow so well. And it does sound like it's coming from one person technically that I'm like I think it works really well in that in that light like it's someone that feels like someone telling a story through these characters like they have their own lives but still it feels very like one voice coming through them absolutely Tom and Kendra have either of you and Tom we talked about ensemble a little bit last time we talked about World's End and how you've had some of actors and friends and people you know that have come back over and over um but what would you say is something that you relate to the most as a filmmaker watching this? Hmm. I guess it's just, um, for me, it's playing up how much you enjoy your influences and not being ashamed of it. You know, Larry's whole career mm-hmm. seems founded in that. And it, it sometime, a couple times in my just creative life, I've had it be like oh you're, you're you're ripping this off or that's too much of x and it's like well yeah i love x that's why i'm doing this so mm-hmm. it's i was really happy i'm happy anytime i can just see somebody who you know not just straight copy and pasting but taking what they love distilling the essence of that down and then making their own work out of it and in the films of larry's that i've seen he's he's doing that and clearly having a ball with it well, you, Kendra, what what would you say you draw out of this you relate to the most? Uh, I mean, one is the beautiful, just like to your face humor. Like that is always going to be my absolute favorite. And I think he like plays that line really well where he doesn't over push it, but is not like under appreciating it. So I just love like I wish to work on something like that uh, 100%. And and for me, like, again, with a lot of the props that he does pick, uh, this wasn't as much as um, Lost Skeleton, but they feel so intentional 
that even though it's very simplistic, they all have a point. And I think that's always something that I like need to remember is you don't like, you can always give a life layer for sure. But like sometimes simplest, like simplistic stuff will give an audience kind of more of a overall, like I get what's going on and I can move on from this. Um, oh, wait, 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 sorry. What's a life layer? A life layer is so like you have your uh, main, uh, you know, furniture pieces and all of that. But life layer is, you know, um, envelopes or mail, you know, on top of a table that's in a living room, keys, change, mm. pictures, all of that. So like the life layer you give to give that like a little bit of oomph that like, it's not just anyone's house, it's this character's house. Five empty Amazon boxes. Exactly. Downstairs <laughs> hey, that does that. You can read a lot from that. That's for sure. It matters on how big and small those boxes are. <laughs> yeah, that's Ke- so true. Kendra, that's yeah, actually fantastic to learn because it takes me back to some, several college films where my professors would just be like, well, this is just clearly made in a college student's apartment. This isn't like an actual house. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? But like now it's like, oh, of course. Yeah, that's that's the perfect uh encapsulation of it defense yeah oh that was my life layer man yeah (laughs) you have to make a house a home that's real stuff i also just loved the paintings i mean you know that was fun he Mm. it's just hilarious oh my gosh the the paintings with the eye holes that have the stare down i loved that and they have the stare down yeah, I I can't think of a movie that gets to have more fun than this. Like even Pixar movies still have to have like a deep moral center, you know? Mm-hmm. I I honestly can't think of a kids movie. This isn't this is not a kids movie. Like I can't think of any movie that is more more pure fun and happy go lucky. But if you two were asked, and Kendra, I'll start with you. Why? Like, what would you say to somebody who you don't know very well? You don't know their taste. What would you say to try and encourage them to watch this movie? Oh man, if you like fun, <laughs> just if you like fun, uh, but I, I think it's like, it's a simple 90 minute movie that just really gets, I feel like it's just, ex- oh goodness, I'm like having a hard time because I'm like, how would I explain? Cause I'd be like, and then there's this and then there's this because it's so hard <laughs> because you get so, I get so excited to talk about his movies all the time that I feel like I just bombard people all the time. Like you've never seen this. Oh, let mm-hmm. me tell you everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'm not the best person to, to tell anyone about this movie, but I would be like, it's it's fun. And it's very engaging for people. It's a very good first Larry movie, I think. Yeah. Tom, what would you say? I would say maybe if you've had a bad day and you want to watch something that'll hold your attention, but also just kind of like encourage you to chill out while mm. you're getting involved like this this is a murder mystery that's not going to lo- load you down with too much of the weight of that it's just here's an int- here's an interesting story for you to unravel but don't worry the movie's going to unravel it for you and tell you some good jokes along the way oh, well said i'm i'm going to wrap up but i'm also going to give you a last chance to look at your notes is there anything else major that you wanted to mention before we sign off oh man well, I just wanted to uh, confirm something with you, Cameron. Uh, I was promised 25 cents for appearing on this show, and uh, I'm not going to turn the microphone off until I get it. Do I look like I carry change? <laughs> well, don't worry. At the end of this, it's actually going to be 87.42. We left the whole thing running. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, that's all, folks. You've been listening to They Came From Outer Space. This has been episode 34 on Larry Blameyer's Dark and Stormy Night from 2009. I want to say 
big thanks to Kendra Mamula and Tom Peeler for being here. Thank you guys. Woo, don't forget your Will Snacks. <laughs> I made Will Snacks once. <laughs> You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond. <laughs> Yeah? So what am I looking for? No, just keep looking. I'll tell you when you find it. All right. But I hope it's 35 cents.